Many of you probably remember playing an educational game in school, but how many of you learned in a place where the whole class was a game? Not me. Were you part of a mastery-based classroom in the seventh grade? I couldn't have told you what that was in 12th grade. Well, Beth Box of, that's right, Okeechobee, Florida, created an interactive year-long game in the face of exacting state standards and apathetic students. The key, she said, mastery-based learning. Yeah, I, I just think that teachers need to um, not be afraid. We, we are so tied to tests and those tests you know, determine if we'll be hired the next year. They determine our pay. They determine so much that we have a tendency to to lock down and get scared to try new things because if they fail, you know, that means we fail for the year. That means our evaluation goes down the toilet. It means all kinds of bad things, but we can't let that stifle us. This is one educator you'll never forget. Trust us. But first, the news. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jo Mata. Welcome to the Ed Search Podcast. Let's get started. There was big, big news from Apple this week, and it might have a little something to do with making sure that iPad sales and education keep up with Google's Chromebook sales. Along the release of iOS 9.3, Apple debuted four new features that aim to help educators manage student accounts and control how kids use iPads. Specifically, students can now more easily share iPads. Teachers have remote control over student iPads and laptops with the new Classroom app. And an updated Apple School Manager feature now allows administrators to create and manage Apple IDs, among other things. TeachScape has agreed to sell its customer base and assets to Frontline Technologies, marking the beginning of the end of a 17-year journey that captured the attention of many educators, venture capitalists, and, most recently, lawyers. TeachScape traveled a long and, at times, complicated path before the sale, which editor Tony Wan explored this week on EdSurge. The full story, which Tony identifies as the most complicated EdTech story he's ever encountered in his four and a half years of writing for EdSurge, can be found on our site. Most schools consider it every educator's job to teach students to do close reading, not just the English teachers. That can be a particular challenge for science teachers who share dense scientific texts with struggling students. To help out, Stanford University's Graduate School of Education is offering a free online course via the online learning platform NovoEd aimed at helping educators learn how to examine the selection of useful science texts and adopt strategies for supporting student comprehension over time. President Obama gave his final State of the Union address two nights ago. He touched on community colleges, as he has in the past, record high school graduation rates, and free universal pre-K. And something new, he emphasized hands-on computer science education. If you don't like the speech but don't know why, Digital learning specialist and EdSearch writer Carrie Gallagher had some words on why the scope of Obama's STEM advocacy wasn't broad enough. Specifically, she said that his words should promote coding, data analysis, media creation, and communication and sharing in all areas, not just in math, science, and technology. So speaking of coding, what does it really take to get girls to code? That's the rhetorical question that high school senior Mira Baliga posed to the EdSurge audience this week. 
In her tell-all article, she outlines how and why the program, Girls Who Code, significantly influenced her decision to pursue a career in computer science. She offers tips that any computer science teacher or administrator can start using tomorrow, like give girls female mentors who currently have coding jobs. And by the way, Mira asks that we seek girls out and inspire them instead of expecting them to just jump right on the coding bandwagon. And now it's time for kitchens. Noodle Markets, a subsidiary of the Noodle Companies, founded by John Katzman, has raised $3 million in a seed round led by Rethink Education, with Palm Ventures also participating. Founded in January 2015, the company takes aim at the K-12 technology procurement problem by creating a marketplace that helps entrepreneurs find RFPs and connect with district decision makers. Next up, Legend Capital has invested 60 million renminbi, that's 9.2 million US dollars, in Beijing-based Juryo Education's Series A round. Juryo provides one-on-one tutoring services for K-12 students through iPads. Congrats to Noodle Markets and Juryo, and everyone else who got funding this week. Now, today's deep dive brings us to Beth Box, who's been teaching 7th grade civics at Yearling Middle School in Okeechobee, Florida, for seven years. It's a rural district, and the majority of her students come from low-income backgrounds. Beth was born and raised in Okeechobee, and she describes herself as, quote, always being in love with the Okeechobee school system. Because we're so invested in this community, you get a feeling here that you really don't get in other places, that, um, you know, your teachers aren't just there to teach you. They're an extended part of your family. The school system is really woven into every single aspect of life in this uh, district, and that's something that I really like being a part of. Things have changed since then. As a teacher, Beth has struggled with classroom apathy and crowbarring all the material on standardized tests into her limited class time. A few years ago, she felt a downturn in student interest. Her kids didn't care if they got an F. Her classes were rowdy beyond control, so she created Give Me Liberty. Um, The name of the game is Give Me Liberty, and basically the premise is uh, the United States is a dystopian future where the United States no longer exists. Um, Everything's kind of been destroyed through a, a natural disaster, and they, as the protagonists of the game, have discovered some ancient kind of falling apart documents that describe the United States and the values that it uh, was based on, and so their job throughout the year is to collect all the information that put back together to rebuild the United States um, to its former glory. The storyline came from popular young adult literature. Beth said her seventh graders love hypothesizing about a world that's completely fallen apart. For those of you who have read Hunger Games, you probably know what I'm talking about. Academically, the game is geared towards 35 civic standards that Beth teaches to. Each standard becomes an objective in the game, and her kids' behavior and scores on standardized tests have vastly improved since she implemented the game in her classroom. So, um, really, it's gamified course content. They are pursuing that game goal, but um, it's a mix of kind of traditional assignments along with little Easter eggs that kind of take them off the path and let them engage with it uh, in a little bit different way. But their goal every day is to complete an object- objective. Once they complete that objective, 
they get their experience points, and then they can move on to the next objective. And um, so in that sense, it's more mirroring uh, some of the more popular role-playing games and things like that. They have their person that they are trying to navigate through this. Every day they have their course of action, and if they complete it successfully, they move on. If they don't, they go back and they try it again, and they try it as many times as they need to in order to be successful. Beth's water-into-wine moment, the keystone of the game, was switching to mastery-based learning. You know, you don't want to turn into the hateful teacher that's just screaming all the time. That's the worst possible thing to be. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to allow that kind of apathy to sink in on these kids. You don't, you don't want them to just give up. So I started kind of looking around for ideas. The first thing that I did was switch over to mastery learning because what I found is a lot of those struggling kids were giving up because they just felt like, well, I'm not going to get it anyway, so I might as well just take my F and not do the work. Um, once I switched over to mastery learning, I started noticing an uptick in some of the work completion. She said she's even seen students logging on over Christmas break. Her kids tell her that this is the first time they feel they can learn at their own pace. And most of them tell me that that is one of the things they love about this class is because the first, for the first time, they are being allowed to just take off and learn as fast as they possibly can. Um, there's always, there's this old kind of teaching adage that says teach to the middle, you know, because your high kids are going to get it no matter what and your struggling kids, uh, you can't go too far over their heads to just teach to the middle. And I think that's always been a disservice to those higher kids and also to the struggling kids because the higher kids get bored and they want to be able to move on and then your struggling kids are still kind of fighting to keep up. This system allows me to let those higher kids move on the way they want to while I go back and work individually with those struggling kids so that they don't fall behind and so they aren't confused. They can actually feel a sense of success. She said she even has one student who's already three-quarters of the way through the game. Keep in mind it's only halfway through the school year. It's very likely she'll finish before the year is over. So what's next? Last year, Beth had students start making a documentary, filming each other talking about what they had learned. One student created a mini-museum about the women's suffrage movement. Those students are highly motivated, and it's certainly not a worst-case scenario that they get to explore beyond the lessons. No, it's not, and often they move beyond their teacher. Um, on my side, the downside is, uh, and it's kind of a double-edged sword, I mean, it's a plus side and a downside, by the end of the year, I make myself completely obsolete for my kids. And we're actually somewhat getting to that point now where uh, they don't need me anymore. Uh, it becomes rarer and rarer for them to say, I don't understand this and I need you to step in. They become kind of uh, their own agents of learning and they start to figure out, well, if I don't understand this, these are some good resources I can go to dig deeper into this or uh, this is a really good website I found that explains things really simply. And, you know, even though that's kind of dull for me by the end of the year when they don't need me, ultimately that's my goal as a teacher. You know, I don't want them relying on me or anybody else for the rest of their lives. I want them learning how to rely on themselves and learning how to problem solve on their own. So, um, yeah, I kind of write myself out of the picture. 
Okay, but keep in mind, though, there are some downsides. For example, like when the students return to a non-mastery learning classroom, teenage students, especially the struggling ones, have a difficult time returning to the concept of getting a 60%. I just try and remind them that just because the class isn't set up the same way doesn't mean they can't approach it in the same way. And um, I think that's hard for them just mainly because of their age. It's, it's hard for them to uh, apply things from a certain setting to a different setting because they, they don't see the crossover yet. Uh, but the older they get, the more I think they begin to figure that out. Most teachers wonder if this sort of thing would even be possible at their school. Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. It sounds to us like the administration at Yearling went along because they didn't really have anything to lose. There was a bit of a climate of fear with the new civics test. I have a very supportive administration. Um, They're pretty willing to just go with it, you know, see what your results are. If it doesn't work, try something different. But... Um, they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt when you want to try something new, especially when we had gotten to the situation where, you know, across the board, looking at grade books, and everybody's grade books were full of zeros and Fs, um, you know, they, they just kind of told me, if this is something you feel like could work, go on ahead and try it. And then as we started seeing previews of what the civics test looks like, um, if you look at a copy of some of the practice questions for the Florida civics exam, it, it is incredibly difficult. Um, much too difficult for seventh graders, in my opinion, but, you know, that's what we're working with. Um, I think it was at that point that they really said, you know what, it can't work because this is a really difficult test and, you know, 30% of the students grade. So, you know, if, if this works, it's worth a shot. Um, because we, we were just kind of scared once we first saw that test and, and said we got to do something, and they just let me run with it. Ever since then, Beth still has worked to justify using her game to other teachers. Showing other teachers the justification behind this, I keep my classroom door metaphorically open. Anybody who wants to come in and sit with us and work with us can come in anytime they want. And we get a lot of visitors throughout the year. A lot of different teachers come in. Just to, you know, some of them want to see because they want to try some of it themselves. Some of them want to see because they want to see it not work. <laughs> they want to come in and be able to say, I, I knew that that was just a mess. But I have never had somebody come into my room and leave saying that they didn't enjoy it or leave saying that it doesn't work. It seems like she's done so successfully. At the beginning, though, even her friends thought that she didn't really stand a chance. You know, I had one of my good friends that I work with. She admitted to me last year. She was like, you know, when you started talking about this, I did not see any way that this could possibly work. But she came in and she sat down next to a student and he was one of my kind of hard cases, one of my ones that it takes a while for him to get things, and she sat next to him all hour, and she kind of talked to him and looked at what everybody else was doing, and she said that she was astounded by what she saw, because one kid at the table uh, was writing all this stuff out on notebook paper, and we do everything online, so she asked that student, well, what are you doing? What are you writing on paper? And the student says, well, you know, when I take notes from these videos, 
I really like to make sure that I have everything, but that I don't go overboard. So what I do is I write it all on paper, and then I go through and I scratch out what was just extra stuff, and I do this and I do that. And she said, you know, it's like quarantine company to get my students just put a couple things down on paper. And here you've got kids who are writing multiple copies of notes and then editing it down before they actually make their digital copy that they're going to turn in. So that's order. And then the student who struggles that she was sitting next to, it took him all hour to write a response in one discussion post. And she watched him, and she said he would kind of type a couple words, and then he'd kind of pick at his fingernail and look around the room and get distracted, and then type another couple words. And she said, and it, that it was driving her crazy. She said, I couldn't figure out why you wouldn't get on to him, why you wouldn't tell him to get to work. I just wanted to say something, but it's not my classroom, so I didn't. But then she started reading what he was writing. And what he wound up producing was a very thoughtful, clearly worded, um, very well thought out post. And so she just kind of laughed to herself and she said that she realized that was thinking for him. What she was looking at as fidgeting or being off task, that was him being allowed the time he needed to think. And so... You know, she, she admitted to me she was a huge doubter of this. She just didn't think it worked at all. One day in my class, though, was all it took, and she was a believer. She said, I, I get it now. I see where this works. More power to share. So mm-hmm. that, that's kind of how I justify it. When people question it, I just say, well, then come and visit it. See what you think. And to close, here's one heartwarming example that we'll let speak for itself. Um... One of my, my most cherished examples that I will carry with me until the day I die, I count it as one of my biggest successes. Uh, I had a student last year who struggled so tremendously with school. I mean, it, it's really heartbreaking to watch this student try and navigate school because they they don't do very well. And when you look at the student's history with um, standardized tests, they've never passed a single one. From third grade when it starts, all the way up through seventh grade, the student had never made a passing score on a single standardized test in their entire life. And then my civic scores came back, and I'm going through, and I'm counting all the results. And, you know, in the back of my head, it didn't even occur to me to think about that student's score because, you know, they struggled so much. And then I saw their score, and it was a three, and that's the passing point. You know, one and two are considered failure, three, four, five is passing, and I saw three. I checked again, and it said three. I checked it again, and it said three. And it just, you know, overwhelmed me that if that student can be successful, you know, sky's the limit. And for that to be able to tell that student, oh, my gosh, you passed this test, this test that is so hard, and that, you know, statewide kids are struggling with, you passed it. That was probably one of the best moments in my entire career. A huge shout out to all the teachers making games out there, especially to you, Beth Box. You seriously rock. Doesn't she? 
Also, thanks to Mira Baliga and all the writers who contributed to Ed Surge this week. Hey, so while we've got your ears, have all of you checked out our concierge service? The one that's totally free? Yep, you got it, Blake. Ed Surge Concierge connects schools and districts with ed tech products that match their unique instructional and educational needs. Specifically, we, the EdSurge team, consult with school leaders to determine the unique needs and then match that need with products that we feel best provides a viable solution. We reach out to companies on the school's behalf, confidentially, and invite them to submit tailored responses back to the schools. It's awesome. It gives schools a systematic approach to finding and selecting the most appropriate edtech products. Man, that was challenging for me when I was a director of curriculum back in the day, and truthfully, I definitely would have used the concierge process. So if you're interested in getting involved, contact us at edsearch.com concierge. Boom. We love giving away stuff for free. And with that, I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jo Matta. We will see you next week. This is the Ed Search Podcast.